Well, good evening. We got a Pentecostal mic tonight. I might need a sweat towel and a gallon of water. Well, as uh, Pastor Tony said, we'll be starting the life of Paul. What a task to begin. I was talking to him before the service, and I said, you know, as I was studying through this and praying through this, getting ready for tonight, oh, man, I just wanted to get going, and we could just have a several-hour service. But having said that, uh, Awana has requested our presence at 6.30, right, in the fellowship hall. Uh, So... Uh, we'll be stopping at 6.30, so if you're a watch watcher, you know what time we'll be done. So uh, we're going to talk about uh, Paul tonight. Uh, we'll start with Saul, as he was uh, known, and uh, then uh, we'll just have some takeaways. So I'm going to give you a little background on Saul and then just give you some things uh, that we can use as our takeaways uh, for what we uh, will talk about tonight. So let's ask the Lord to bless our time as we read and study together. Uh, God, we come to you tonight, Lord, we're so grateful, uh, God, that you used the life of Paul, uh, God, that you uh, worked in his life, that you rescued him, uh, Lord, from a a life of religious activity, and uh, God, you redeemed him to be one of your own, to follow you, uh, Lord, to reproduce, to make disciples in your name, and so, Lord, we are so grateful for the majority of the New Testament that you inspired him to write, and God, how it's so instructive to our hearts to lead us to know more about you, God, more about your character, more about your nature. And God, uh, the ways in which we can follow you and serve you. And so, Lord, I pray for our time tonight as we study the life of uh, Paul. God, that you'll speak to us. God, you'll challenge us. Uh, Lord, you'll give us information that then we can apply to our hearts that will enable us to be better followers of you. Uh, For it's in your son Jesus' name that we do pray tonight. Amen. So as we talk about uh, the life of Paul, I want to start with this question tonight. And uh, as we get going, I may speed up a little bit, but I want you to really spend some time here thinking for a second. So think about this question. What is your life's greatest accomplishment? What is your life's greatest accomplishment? Life is over today. It's over. It's ended. Ever how many years you've had the opportunity to spend on this round ball called earth, it's done with. And so you, you answer the question then, what is my life's greatest accomplishment? Now, undoubtedly, lots of things are probably going through your mind, and so you'll, you know, maybe there's things that, uh, you know, you, you would think of if someone were to chronicle your life, so to speak, uh, what would they say about your life? Because what we're about to do is we're going we're gonna to endeavor on this journey to follow after a man named Paul, and uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ, so ultimately what we're doing is we're following Jesus through this life of a man named Paul, but if someone were to look at your life and say those things, what are the things that you would want to be included? What would you want them to say? What would you want them to write down? Maybe uh, maybe you were a good athlete. Maybe you got a scholarship. Maybe uh, you were top of your class. You know, there was 240, I think, in my graduating class of high school. I was number 30 or something. I mean, you know, not really one of those things you'd write in a life biography, right? Maybe, uh, maybe you did something important in your life. Maybe you discovered something. Uh, maybe there's something that you're very, very proud of. So what would the pictures, in other words, what would the pictures in your wallet of life be? I thought about that this week. You know, what, what about me? Like, what's, what, what are the pictures? You know, every, you know especially grandparents that like to carry pictures around. And, and so what are some of those good things that I want to be included in my life? 
So whatever those things are, you, you probably have them. You, you know, maybe you, you have a, a high degree. Maybe your education is high. Maybe, uh, maybe, you, maybe you hiked, you know, the Appalachian Trail, and, and that's a huge accomplishment. I know Pastor Tony's done that, and so that's a huge accomplishment in life. So, you know, you've got these things that you've done. But what about those things that you would want excluded? You ever think about those? Maybe the things, you know, we think about all those good things, um, you know, accomplishments, education, uh, experiences. Uh, but then, inevitably, then your mind will think of those things that you don't want to be included in your chronicle of life. Maybe, maybe you made a bad decision. Uh, maybe uh, you had a season of life where you didn't walk with the Lord. You've heard testimonies like that before, right? That, that you know, you came to faith and, and, you, and you drifted. You see, everyone has a dark side. Now, some of yours we know and some we don't. Uh, you know, everybody, uh, some people start out bad and they end differently. Many testimonies are like that. Uh, a couple months ago, Wade gave his testimony in uh, men's breakfast, and he talked about how he started out bad and God redeemed him, changed him. Uh, you know, we all have that testimony if we're believers of how God took uh, what we messed up and redeemed it. Some people, though, they, they never change, right? You know, you've got people in your life that they started out bad and they're still bad. And uh, so that's kind of the chronicle of their life. And so as we think about this, you know, the good things and the bad things, so to speak, the things that we want to include, the things we don't want to include, how do you, how do you summarize a, a life of Paul? And so as we begin to talk about Paul, uh, we're going to look at some things uh, this evening just simply some informational things. This is, if you're ever on Jeopardy, this will help you. Uh, so this is just informational stuff about who he is. And then we're going to talk about, in light of now what we know, how does that apply to our current situation? And so just some background information on uh, Paul. He was born, uh, his uh, Israelite name or his Hebrew name was Saul. Uh, he was born in a city of Tarsus. Uh, now, of course, his mom and dad uh, decided at an early age that they wanted him to be as smart as he could be. And uh, so they taught him as best they could. Now, his dad was a prominent tent maker. And in Philippians chapter 3, some of the verses we talk about tonight will be up here, some won't. Uh, but I believe this one's up there. Philippians 3, 5 uh, says he was circumcised on the eighth day. Uh, he was uh, of the people of Israel, so who's an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law of Pharisee. And so he was named after, as you could imagine, uh, Israel's first king, Saul. They were very proud of their heritage, and so they named their little boy after the first king. Now, his parents were Pharisees, and so they made sure that Paul was very, or Saul was very, very educated. And so Jerusalem was their ultimate goal. We've got to get to Jerusalem. And so at an early age, uh, they took the family, and there's some verses in the Bible you'll read about. Uh, Saul talks about uh, his sister's son. Uh, so it's believed that Saul took, uh, Saul's family rather all moved to Jerusalem when he was about 10 or 12, somewhere in that age range. And so when they moved to Jerusalem, uh, they got uh, what they thought was the best teacher, the best rabbi possible, uh, Gamaliel. Now, you've seen his name in Scripture. We'll look at that here in a second. And so he studied under Gamaliel for five or six years to become the best Pharisee that he could be. That was their life ambition, is we want you to know the law, every jot and tittle, 
Uh, we want you to know everything that there is to know about it, and then we want you to be able to defend it. And so that was one of the things that uh, Saul did in his early years with Gamaliel, is he would, uh, he would go in and he would learn the laws, and they would learn in a style called diatribe, which was basically a, a, a confrontational way to learn. Uh, it was tell me what you believe, and I'm going to try to poke holes in it until I can't poke holes in it anymore. And so they would begin to, uh, to, to dialogue or to argue back and forth. Now, Gamaliel, was, uh, his family was famous. He was the grandson of the famous rabbi Halil, um, and he took a rather lenient view of the Old Testament. Uh, so we see that uh, Saul's teacher uh, you know, wasn't so big on the historical aspect, really just on the, uh, the law aspect of the Old Testament. And so Saul's ambition then was to be on the Sanhedrin. Now, Sanhedrin was a council of 70 people plus uh, the high priest. And uh, so all, points, uh, all things point to the fact that Saul did, in fact, make it to the Sanhedrin. And so it was during this time that Saul really developed his methodologies of how he would uh, understand the law, how he would interact with the law. And so he was, uh, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was smart. He was educated. He was equipped to defend the Jewish uh, laws, the Jewish nature. And so his objective then was anybody that was against, uh, anybody that brought anything against the kingdom of the Jews, so to speak, he was going to knock it down. He was going to tear it down. And so we see in the book of Acts in the very beginning that the gospel began to spread. Now, inevitably, uh, Saul's in Jerusalem. So, you know, as we talked about this morning uh, with Capernaum, think about just the logic of this. Jesus was not uh, unknown to Saul. Uh, in the city of Jerusalem, he had many, many people, obviously many uh, activities took place uh, surrounding that. And so after the resurrection, we began to see the gospel spread like wildfire. And Saul had knowledge of, of course, Jesus and who he was. And so it, began his, it became his life ambition uh, to do his absolute best to eliminate this, uh, uh, this following, if you will, that uh, became against, so he thought, the Jewish lifestyle. And so we read in Acts chapter 5 uh, that the disciples have been preaching. Uh, they were arrested. Uh, we see in uh, the middle of Acts chapter 5 that they were uh, released. It says, uh, when the high priest came, those who were with him, they called together the council, and they sent to the prison to have uh, Peter and Paul brought in, the apostles. But when they came, they did not find them in the prison. And so it turns out that they were preaching. Uh, and so someone said uh, in verse 25, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. So they went and got them and had them brought in. And so if you want to follow along in Acts chapter 5, verse 27, these I do not believe are on the screen, uh, but in Acts chapter 5, verse 27 and following, it says the, the apostles, Acts 5, 27, the apostles were brought in. So again, this, this, the way uh, is what they refer to it as, this following of Jesus had become quite, uh, quite the uh, spectacle. And so the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin, to be questioned by the high priest. Now remember, it's believed that Saul made the Sanhedrin. So we gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, they told them. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood, which of course is Jesus. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. Now I'm sure that did not go over very well. 
So God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So then, so, so we, here we have the situation where the Sanhedrin, of course, Saul is, uh, it's believed that Saul is present there, and he's hearing this proclamation of who Christ is, who uh, Jesus is, and uh, the Holy Spirit whom God has given us to obey him. So we see then in verse, uh, if you'll uh, follow on, in verse 32, it says, when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. So guess who shows up? Verse 34. A Pharisee named Gamaliel. Now, we, we know who he is, right? He's Paul or Saul's teacher, his rabbi, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people. Now, everybody revered him. They respected him. He stood up in the Sanhedrin, and he ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. So this is kind of like when the new preacher comes in, and he preaches, and then they say, if you will, step out, and we're going to vote on you, right? So they're going to vote on, on these guys. And so he addresses the Sanhedrin. So this is beyond the ears of the uh, disciples. He says, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theudas uh, appeared uh, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All of his followers were dispersed, and it, came, it all came to nothing. Verse 37, After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. And he too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, and so here he is as an attorney, so to speak, giving his closing statement, leave these men alone, let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Well, that's pretty good advice. And so he says, the Bible says his speech persuaded them. And so they called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Now, the uh, Sanhedrin wanted to, to nix this, all right? It was time for Peter to stop talking, and this disrespect of we would rather obey God than man probably sent their blood pressures to all-time highs. But then we see this unexpected ally. Now, one of the things we've been learning in the book of Judges is that even though God's silent, that doesn't mean he's not active, right? And so, as we see here, God is always at work. And here's Peter standing before uh, the, the Sanhedrin, about to lose his life, and in steps the most unexpected ally of the day. It's one of those twists in the movie that you didn't really see that coming, right? And so, Gamaliel steps up and says, hey, just, just wait a minute. If this is not from God, then it'll die out. It'll fizzle out. All this excitement that they've got, all this fellowship that they, they're proclaiming, it's not going to last. So one of the things we can get from this as we begin to talk about the life of Saul is that when we, we find ourselves a lot of times in situations. I mentioned, you know, what are the things we want to have left out of our life chronicle? Well, you know, those things that we find ourselves in that seem to be hopeless, thankfully, because of the sovereignty of God, there is a Gamaliel sitting somewhere in the shadows that God will use at the precise moment that their words will have the greatest impact. So regardless of whatever situation we find ourselves in, there's probably a Gamaliel somewhere in the balance, not teaching you the Jewish law, but someone that God will use to step in and say, hey, I'm going I'm to stand up, I'm going to advocate for these guys. 
And so I want you to think back in, in your life to the rescue moments that you've had. You know, if it weren't for so-and-so in my life, where would I be? I, or you may say, if it weren't for this person or this situation, I might not be alive today. See, those are some of the conversations we'll be able to have with Peter. Is there were several situations where Peter almost lost his life, and but God, but God sent someone. So we first meet Saul then, uh, specifically mentioned here in Scripture, if you'll flip a couple chapters over, in chapter 7, at the stoning of Stephen. Now, Stephen, uh, of course, Stephen gives his speech uh, before uh, the high priest. Uh, we see in verse 7 and then verse 54, now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him, which sounds pretty scary, right? Anybody ever ground their teeth at you? And he, full of the Holy Spirit, which is Stephen, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses, verse 58, laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Introduce Saul. Here is Saul. Now Saul, of course, was at Sanhedrin. Uh, he was at uh, the... Uh, conversations that were taking place with Peter. A couple verses later, or a couple chapters later, we hear the conversations with Stephen and all that Stephen gave. Uh, he called them in verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. I mean, that's probably a hard pill to swallow for someone who is an expert in Jewish law. And so here comes Saul holding the clothes as they stone Stephen, the Bible says in uh, Acts chapter 8 and verse 3, he began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would out them in prison. So we see that here comes Saul on the scene. And he's not just, you know, Mr. Disruptor. He's, he's not, you know, someone who opposes your opinion. He's someone who eliminates the opposing opinion. We see in Acts chapter 26 that Saul wanted everyone dead. Uh, in Acts 26 verse 10, he said, I did so, these are uh, Paul's words, I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. In other words, I wanted them dead. I wanted all those Christians dead. He says, I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities, which is why you and I know the gospel. It's called the dispersion or the dispersia, where they, uh, because of the persecution, the gospel went out. Now, in today's world, especially in Western culture, when there is persecution, we run in, right? We all holy huddle together and talk about all the bad things that are happening in our life. But the dispersia sent them out. And so because of the persecution, we see the gospel spread into different parts of the world, ultimately here. And so as we are introduced here, you know, next week we'll get into the, uh, the encounter that Jesus had with Saul. But as we're introduced to Saul, now, of course, with the lens of history, we can look back and see the life of, of Paul and who he ultimately became. So I want to encourage you with just three things this morning or this evening, three thoughts about what we know about Saul and what we ultimately learn about Saul through his life. The first thing I want us to see tonight is that you and I are all very easily deceived by self and in desperate need of rescue. We are all very, very deceived by self. 
You see, it's been said if the great temptation of the sinner is unbelief, then the great temptation of the believer is misbelief. I mean, think about Capernaum this morning. The question was brought up in Sunday school, what was the greatest sin of Capernaum? It was knowing and not doing. I mean, here's Jesus, the incarnation of God the Father, right before them, performing all of the miracles, and yet in their desperation and their depravity, if you will, they didn't recognize their need. And so what they began to do is follow after their own religious system, their own religious activity. So their sin was misbelief. They were zealous, but zealous for the wrong things. And so we see here in the life of Paul, he was so deceived into believing that what he was following after was the absolute and utter number one thing that he could possibly devote his life to. It's believed that Saul came and studied under Gamaliel, and then after he studied that, he went back to his hometown, and he started making tents. And it, you know, t- time you know, is not exactly accurate, but they believe he was there for a few years. And then he heard about this following, and all these people that were following after this Jesus, and he says, uh-uh. I'm not having that. I didn't study under Gamaliel for five years to have them come in and mess all this up. And so he started going after Christians in the most rabid way possible. You see, we easily deceive ourselves into believing what we want to believe. Paul said in Acts 26, 9, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He had convinced himself that what he was doing was worthy What he was doing was worthwhile. And so I asked myself the question as I was studying through this, what are the things that we've convinced ourselves of that are not true? What is it? You know, when I ask you what are the life's greatest accomplishments, you probably have some things rattling around in your brain. And so the question would be, well, what what are some of those things that I believe about myself that are embellished? And what are some of those things that I believe about myself that are actually true? You see, we easily deceive ourselves. The longer it is, the better it gets, right? You see, we we have a culture of misbelief that we live in. I mean, think about about a few things, and I won't go into detail, but I don't want to ruin it for you, but have you ever heard of the man named Santa Claus? Tooth fairy. we got a lot of them, right? And we thrive off of these misbeliefs that we, we uh, propagate in our lives. James 1.26 says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Worthless. And so the deception that we can easily fall into is that what we're doing is worthwhile. And, and what it really does is it pushes us farther away from the truth and more so reveals the depravity of who we are and the desperate need of rescue in which we so desperately need. When James talks about this uh, deception in his heart, it is, uh, it's the sensual word that he's using here, the personal desires and pleasure. And we are kings of deceiving ourselves and believing that we must have this and must have that for our personal desires and pleasure. We justify our own desires and our own selfishness. So I want to make a plug here for disciple-making. That's why disciple-making is so important. You say, well, why? Because you and I need accountability. 
We need somebody that will look into our life and not tell us what we want to hear, but that will tell us the things that we need to hear. Now, I'm not talking about, did you do this? Check. Did you do that? Check. Did you read your Bible? Check. I'm talking about somebody that is walking with you in life mission saying, you know, what is going on in your life? What are the highs of your week? What are the lows of your week? What are the things that you're struggling with? What are the things that I can come alongside you and pray about? Those are the things that we talk about accountability and James is talking about being deceived. I can't be deceived if you're looking into my life because I'm hearing from another perspective of what God is doing through you into my life. So that's why it's so important for you and I to be a part of a group that we can trust People that uh, are faithful, not only to the gospel, that, but that are faithful to us so that they can speak truth, that they've got credibility in my life, that they can speak truth into my life to help me see the blind spots that I can't see myself. Socrates uh, said that recognition of one's own ignorance is the starting point for the acquisition of knowledge or wisdom. So once we acknowledge the fact that we don't have it, then we're on the path to getting it. But, but our heart is so deceitful. Je- uh, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart's deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So when we think about our own vices, it, it, it becomes so apparently clear that we are very, very easily deceived. Paul claims in uh, Philippians 3, 6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law. Look what he says here, blameless, blameless. He had deceived himself into believing that he was perfect, that there was absolutely nothing wrong with his life. There was absolutely nothing wrong with his actions. And ultimately, as we look back through the lens of history, we see that he was doing the complete worst thing that he could possibly do. I mean, it would be as though we had uh, some ISIS fighter standing up here today proclaiming the gospel and looking back at his life because that's exactly the same thing that Saul was doing, claiming to be, though, blameless in righteousness in the law. And so you and I have to be careful about those things in which we completely devote our lives to, to know that those things are absolutely and totally true. Well, how do we know that? We know that because of the Word. You know, any interpretation you have of anything that happens in your life that's spiritual must be in line with the Word of God. There is nothing that happens in contradiction to the Word of God. And so when we talk about being uh, deceived by self and in desperate need of rescue, when you want to know what the answer to the situation is, anytime that somebody tells me something that happened in their life or an encounter that they had with God, my first thought is, well, where have I read that in Scripture? This is what they taught us in seminary. If it's new, it's not true. If it's true, it's not new. And so anything that we see here with the deception uh, of our own hearts, if we come up with some new way of doing something, And you just take a step back and say, wait a minute, not sure about this. So the first thing is we're all easily deceived by self and in desperate need of rescue. The second thing, and I really had a lot of fun here, and I'd like to spend a long time, but we won't, uh, is that there are no depths to which redemption can't reach. There are no depths to which redemption cannot reach. Think about that. There's nobody that you know in your entire life who can't be reached by God. Nobody. I mean, that ought to be encouraging. There's no depths to which redemption can't reach. We're talking about uh, a, a pre-modern uh, you know, culture uh, ISIS fighter here. I mean, that's what he was. As I was thinking about this and reading the life of Saul, I'm like, well, that's happening right now. It's the exact same thing. It's been said that it, is, uh, it was not men as persons who were redeemed 
but the organism of human nature was redeemed. I mean, think about that. So in other words, what it's saying is, you know, all the activities, think about it this way. When we talk about redemption, we, we think of in terms of ourselves. And we think about, I've been redeemed from my sin. And then we, uh, we assign or we, uh, we put activities or actions or, or sin to those things. So in other words, if I make a mistake, so if I, you know, if I murder someone or if I commit a sin, whatever that sin may be, we say, I need redemption. And so we view redemption in the lens of me. And we view redemption in the lens of the activity. But what redemption is, it's not in the activity, which is the, uh, the, the end result. It is the cause of the activity. So we're redeemed for human nature. So, so think about it this way. The, the redemption that we received from Jesus Christ was the nature that redeemed us. It was the beginning, not the end. And so it would be like me going to my children and punishing them for uh, an activity. So, for instance, you know, something that I'd never revealed to them that was wrong. So if I said, hey, you know, you're not supposed to do this and punish them for the activity in which they had no knowledge that it was wrong, then what I'm doing is I'm punishing the wrath of God, which is what redemption is from. I'm punishing them for the activity that they committed, whereas what Jesus did is he went to the cause of it, okay? And he said, well, the cause of all this sinfulness, the wages of sin is what? Death. So all the cause of this sinfulness that leads to death is human nature, so this is very instructive. Think about this. So if you get, think about why then Jesus came as a human. Why did Jesus come as a man? Why does Philippians say they took on the form of human flesh? Because he had to redeem human nature. He had to redeem humanity. He could have easily said, all right, all of the activity that's sin and all the activity that's sinfulness Done with, over with. He has the power and the ability to do that. But what did he do? He came to the root of the problem. And the root of my problem, the root of your problem, the necessary desperate need that we have for redemption is because of our root, not because of the activity. That's why, this, listen to this, that's why behavioral modification never changes anyone. Because we're fixing the end, we're not fixing the beginning. And so when we talk about this desperate need that we have for, uh, for Jesus to rescue us, that the redemption can reach all the way to the last person, is because the action was never the redemption objective. Think about that. The activity was never the objective. It was human nature that caused the action or the activity. That's good stuff. I was, I was getting excited about that. And here's why. Listen, this is why that is so important. I hope that made sense to you. Is that the prince of lies can always deceive you and me into believing that my activity and my action is worthwhile, which is exactly what happened to Saul. Satan is okay with us deceiving ourselves into believing that what we're doing is okay. Think about this. Think about words in which we still possess today. The word faith. Satan's okay with you saying that. As a matter of fact, he's okay with you having faith. James 2.19 this morning, the, the demons in hell believe and yet tremble. They have faith. Think about some other words that Satan is okay with. He's okay with the word Christian. He's okay with the word church. We still have all those words, right? He's okay with them. Why is he okay with those? Because in deception of human nature, we have redefined those to easy believism, Pastor talked about this this morning, we've redefined those into easy believism, and therefore they're not effective anymore. 
Go into all the nations and make disciples, and we've redefined that as in disseminate information and don't enact any life change through the Holy Spirit, and you can pat yourself on the back. That is not redemption. We're not getting to the root cause of the problem. We're trying to modify the behavior. And Satan is completely okay with that. You know what Satan's not okay with? Following Jesus and doing it in a biblical way which is making disciples, reproducing. You see, redemption can reach anybody. Think about Paul. He was zealous, or you know, Saul as we're talking of today, he was zealous. He had temporary religion. And what did King Agrippa say in Acts chapter 26, verse 24? He said, much learning made you mad. All this information, all this knowledge. Even a, a, a non-believer to a non-believer, you know, he, he said, in, in your unbelieving state, you're crazy, man. You're crazy. All this learning. And so what changed Paul's life then? Was it all this information? Was it this, this, uh, uh, this amazing knowledge that he had gained? What was the redemption to which God reached down and saved his soul? It was through an encounter with who? Jesus. It was through an encounter with Jesus. And so it was through truth intersecting his life. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Truth intersected the life of Paul. So deception met truth, which the truth we know is Jesus Christ, and it totally changed his life. In Psalms chapter 60, verse 4, you have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow, or that it may be displayed because of truth. The truth was that no amount of works, no amount of rule following could have ever redeemed Saul. None of it. Or in the words of a legalist, you're never going to get it, buddy. It's never going to happen. Psalms 49, 7 and 8, this is good right here. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. So what does that mean? It means you can't save yourself. And it means that there's nobody in your life that you're ever going to say the right amount of words or do the right amount of things that they'll ever come to faith in Jesus Christ. It is only through the power of Jesus that they will be saved. And that is through what? Through truth, which is what? Thy word is truth through Scripture. That's how it's going to happen. Psalms 49, 15, God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. So just like Paul and just like me and my uh, pre-salvation legalism uh, scenario and just like maybe uh, other people that we know, maybe even yourself, that you try to save yourself, but we can't. So God gave us the law to reveal the fact that we couldn't do it. He says, you guys think you're good enough? Okay, well, here's what the law is. So based on the law, now tell me how good you're doing. Galatians chapter 3, verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, exclamation mark. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But it's not. It's through the redemption of Jesus Christ. So the law did not raise them out of the atmosphere of Satan's deceit, nor from the bondage of his control, and nor will it do it for you or for me. This obedience, this slavish state of obedience 
is not a state of atonement. We'll never be atoned. We'll never be redeemed by following the law. The state of redemption must come from Jesus Christ. I, I thought about this. We, we actually talked about this a little bit in Sunday school today. So this is what I think. You hear testimonies all the time. Jeff York's a great example of this. He and I have had lots of conversations about this. We talk about uh, how God redeemed him and called him from the, the, the pit of sin, if you will, in the world's eyes. And we talk about, you know, like uh, Brian and uh, Rod were joking with me this week. I've never had alcohol. I mean, it's, it's a legalist thing, okay? So it just never happened. So they were, oh, man, you know, you, you know, I can't believe that. And so Jeff and I have talked about that, this testimony of somebody who's, you know, been, uh, you know, kept their nose clean, right? And then someone who's strung out on drugs and you know, many other testimonies that have been, you know, out as far as the world could sling you without killing you. And you think about those testimonies, and you say, oh, man, you see this testimony of somebody who is far from God, I mean, really far from God in the world's eyes, and then God redeems him and draws them in, and God saves him and radically repentance changes their life, and you see that change, and it's very evident, and it's easy to see. But here's the difficult part. When you have a churchgoer who's grown up in their life, and they learn behavior modification, and they learn the right things to say, and they can't fight their way out of a wet paper bag theologically, but they can fend you all because they know just enough to say the right things, but yet their heart, just like the Pharisees, was, is full of dead man's bones. Jesus' words. I know exactly what that's like. And so what I believe is that redemption is, is the most difficult, humanly speaking, for those that are closest to the church yet farthest from God. I mean, we've got people, you know, I, I can... I mean, we could have a long conversation about this. When we talk about what discipleship really means, and we talk about making disciples, and we talk about being redeemed, which ultimately leads you to making disciples, that's, that's the, the great commission, the great commandment of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we talk about that redemption, we've got people that are so enthralled in religion, that are so engaged in religion, that are so involved in religion, and they wouldn't miss church if you paid them $1,000, but they've never made a disciple for the kingdom of God, and and why is it? Because of number one, they're deceiving themselves into believing that their religious activity is going to result in sanctification. It's not going to happen. And there's no one that can't be reached, but I think the hardest ones to reach are the ones that sit beside us on Sunday mornings. So it's easy to see those people far from God and recognize their imminent need for Jesus, right? But it's those that are pretending that have deceived themselves in which it's most difficult for them to recognize their need for redemption. You see, obedience without relationship is slavery. But obedience through relationship is fellowship. We've been adopted into the family of God. And so now I can follow Jesus because I've been redeemed. I've been changed. I've been set free from the bondage of the law, that which I was never capable of achieving because the law revealed that to me. And so redemption then reaches down for, to those that are closest and those that are farthest away. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. What a verse. Jesus Christ became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. 
And so this morning when Miss Brenda came down and she asked the Lord to save her and that she confessed her sins and said, I want to follow after you, I then said, now God the Father looks at you through the lens of Jesus Christ and your sin has been washed as white as snow. As far as the east is from the west, you have been redeemed. So Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. So your list of terrible things that you've done does not include blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. I dare say there's no one in this room, probably no one that you know, who's the farthest away from God who's ever murdered a Christian. Probably didn't happen. So what am I saying when I say that? That no one's farther away that can't be reached by redemption. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he, he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So Christ Jesus ransomed you and me. He didn't ransom you to save you and to let you go. He saved you. He ransomed you to bring you back into the family of God, to redeem your sinful human nature, my sinful human nature. And so we're not simply redeemed from the wrath of God. We are redeemed from the power of the enemy, which results in the wrath of God. And so human nature is redeemed. That's redemption. It's a change from within. Christ has redeemed us, or He is taking us, as the original word says, completely out from from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it's written, Curses everyone uh, that hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. No one's too far from the redemption of Jesus. And last but not least this afternoon is that your past does not determine your future. Your past does not determine your future. So regardless of what you've done, and regardless of where you've been, and regardless of what you've said, Jesus still loves you. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. No matter how deep in sin you or someone you know may be, redemption is not too far away. It can never be outstretched. And whatever you've done, it's not the end of you if you still have breath, right? So your past, your past does not determine your future. Think about it this way. So growing up, this is, uh, you know, it was uh, a decision culture. Uh, so in other words, people made a decision, right? And that was it. Great job. They came to church. The end. Now let's go find somebody else, right? So we're going to talk about disciple making again. That's the beginning, right? The beginning of salvation is not that you come to church, you walk an aisle, you pray a prayer, you accept uh, a decision card, and you commit to follow Jesus, and now you're done. No, that's the beginning. That's the beginning of your walk with Christ. And so then you begin to follow Jesus, and people come alongside you, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, follow me as I follow Christ. And so they walk with you. And so the gospel coming to you, listen to this tonight, was not the end of the gospel. We live in a culture that is me, 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 and we so elevate ourselves to believe that, you know, there's songs that we talk about that elevate me. We talked about in Sunday school this morning, but John said what? He says that he must increase and I must decrease. 
And so instead of elevating ourselves to a position of, uh, of, of worthiness that the gospel came to me because God wanted me to be on his team and God wanted to redeem me and God wanted to save me, and so the gospel came to me and boom, it stopped. That's what we've done in our culture. But listen, the gospel came to you. This is so important. The gospel came to you while it was on its way to someone else. That hurts our ego. But it is so true. And I'm grateful for that, and you're grateful for that, because as it was coming through somebody else, it came to you. And it doesn't stop with you. That's why disciple-making is so important. It's because the gospel, it's going somewhere. Think about Saul. We'll read about it next week. Where, what was Saul doing when he encountered Jesus? Was he sitting at the temple? Was he hanging out with the Pharisees? Was he reading the, the, the Old Testament law? No, he was what? He was on his way to Damascus. Think about uh, Luke, uh, the road to Emmaus. The guys were, after the, resur- at the resurrection of Jesus, they were walking. And what does the Bible say on the road to Emmaus? That Jesus came and he walked with them. And they were going somewhere. They were going on the road to Emmaus. And at the end, after they had walked with Jesus, they followed Jesus. Listen, guess what they did? Guess what they said? Did did not our hearts burn within us? Man, what an amazing scripture. Because why? Why is that? Because their past, they realized, did not end with them receiving this good news that this Jesus that they followed had resurrected. No, they knew that it was moving on. And and little did they know after the fact that this same Jesus who resurrected, that all the city was in, in an uproar about, they were walking with him somewhere else, that that gospel was continuing to move. Listen, do not believe that coming to church and the gospel coming to you is the end of the gospel. It is not the end. You are a conduit for the gospel. I am a a conduit for the gospel that it may come to me, and as the gospel comes to me, it continues to move on. So in in my life, let's talk about me. Where does the gospel go next in my life? Well, God's entrusted me to children, so the gospel, first of all, goes to my children. And so I have a responsibility that as the gospel came to me, it is on its way to my kids. And I have a a responsibility that as the gospel is coming to me, guess what it's doing? It is going to where? It is going to that circle in which God has planted me in my life. All those people that I have a sphere of influence around, those people are in line of where the gospel is moving to. Because redemption can do what? It can reach anybody. And so if I deceive myself into believing that I am so worthy to be saved that God sent His only Son just to die for me so that the gospel would ultimately reach me, ever how far away from God I may be or ever how close to God I may think that I am in deceiving myself, the gospel still came in route to someone else. So that's how we ought to look at church, and that's how we ought to look at disciple-making, is that God saved me because He wants to save somebody else. You see, living the truth of this principle will completely change your viewpoint on church. It'll change your viewpoint on work. It'll change your viewpoint on life in general. So never let your past experiences harm your future. Don't let the enemy uh, condemn you. You know, the Bible says that the enemy is the great accuser of the brethren. Don't let him accuse you into believing that because of your past you have no future. That's, That's totally not true. Never let your past experiences harm your future. Your past can't be altered, and your future doesn't deserve the punishment. There's a song by Mercy Me. It's called Dear Younger Me, and I absolutely love the song. You may have heard it before. And he talks about how what he would say if he could do it over. Here's the lyrics of the song. 
He says, Dear younger me, where do I start? If I could tell you everything that I have learned so far, then you could be one step ahead of all the painful memories still running through my head. I wonder how much different things would be, dear younger me. He says, dear younger me, I can't decide. Do I give you some speech about how to get the most out of your life, or do I go deep and try to change? The choices that you'll make because they're choices that made me. And even though I love this crazy life, sometimes I wish it was a smoother ride. And then at the end, he says, if I knew then what I know now. Have we ever said that before? He says, condemnation would have had no power. My joy, my pain would have never been my worth. If I knew then what I know now would have not been hard to figure out what I would have changed if I had heard, dear younger me. So that's what I want to leave you with tonight and encouraging to, to say, dear younger me. It's not your fault. You were never meant to carry this beyond the cross. And so regardless of what your past is, because of the redemption of Jesus Christ, being ever-reaching, that even in the deception of our own hearts, Jesus still loves us. And that Jesus still calls us to be a conduit for the gospel. That regardless of what your past is, that you have a future. And because of your future, your neighbor, your coworker, your children are going to hear the gospel. And they're going to be changed for it. And so as I was thinking about that song, I thought to myself, what would Paul's older self say to his younger self at salvation? What would he say? After all the missionary journeys that he had been on, after all the trials and persecution and the floggings that he went through, after all the messages that he preached, after all the letters that he wrote to the churches, can't you imagine that the condemnation that the enemy tried to throw on Saul when he came to know Christ and he says, well, you'll never be anything for the kingdom. Look at what you've done. And so I imagine if, if Paul were to say to himself, he were to look back and say, dear younger me, he'd say, it's not I, but Christ. Right? Not I, but Christ. And so in your life, regardless of where you're at, be encouraged to know that one of the greatest killers of Christians of all time became one of the greatest followers of Jesus of all time. Because it wasn't about him. It was about Jesus. It always was, and it always will be.